difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Genevieve Kosky, Keith Phipps, and Tasha Robinson. In our last episode, we ventured to the Mexican interior of John Huston's 1948 adventure, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. This week, we're following Spike Lee downriver for his new Netflix film, The Five Bloods, an ambitious epic about four black Vietnam veterans who return to the country for more than just a reunion. Delroy Lindo, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, and Isaiah Whitlock Jr. star as the veterans who join a guide, played by Johnny Tree Nguyen, and Lindo's son, played by Jonathan Majors, on a journey in country. The four veterans are looking for the remains of their unit leader, Norman, whose death still haunts them decades later. They're also looking for a stash of gold bars they'd buried together close to the site where Norman died. It is both a literal and metaphorical reality that landmines await them along the way. And as in the treasure of the Sierra Madre, the bond they carry into the mission starts to fray once they've found what they're looking for. We'll talk it over after the break. Black GI in Memphis, Tennessee. A white man assassinate Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King also opposed the U.S. war in Vietnam. Black GI, your government sent 600,000 troops to crush the rebellion. Your soul sister and soul brothers are enraged in over 122 cities. They killed them. Why you fight against us? so far away from where you are needed okay so what did everybody think of the five bloods oh i really liked it this is a very strong showing from uh, spike lee and and uh you know it's one of those films of course you know it's a cliche but it works on a couple different levels and and uh i was i was compelled by it just as a story for one thing but uh the way he piles you know different thematic concerns and these, these great performances onto it i don't know we'll get into it but strong pro for me Yes, same here. Maybe a little more qualified in in certain aspects of it, but I think, you know, that I don't want to say overstuffed quality, but just sort of the like, you know, his tendency to jam so much into a movie means that like, even when certain elements aren't at exactly the level that I'm hoping for, I can still both appreciate the ambition on display and process them within the greater whole. Yeah, this degree to which um, Cassie DaCosta wrote this piece for the Daily Beast titled Spike Lee's to Five Bloods Misses the Mark and Does a Disservice to Its Women. And oh, okay, that's exactly what I was gonna, I was like looking for a piece that talked about that because that is my issue. Yeah, I, and I think everything she says in it is right. Like she basically says that uh, the movie does not do justice to its Vietnamese characters, that it shortchanges the main characters on their on their story arcs, that it shortchanges the women that it plays into a lot of dangerous stereotypes that Spike Lee should know better than given how long he's been fighting uh, stereotypes about black characters. And I think everything that she says is right and that this movie is is really flawed. And I did not notice any of that, like watching it the first time. I was, I was just so caught up in both the adventure and the stakes, like the personal stakes for each one of these men individually. I think it's a really well-told story. I think there's a lot going on, both just like formally and emotionally. I think it ties into the moment right now with the the police violence protests that are going on right now and the kind of the new wave of consciousness raising that people are having in terms of how black people are, are misused and, and seen and profiled in America. It just, it couldn't feel more relevant to the moment, mm-hmm. but it's, it also just feels like such a crackerjack adventure story, you know, like a very, very spikely take on a John Huston movie, which in some ways it is, which is why we're talking about Treasure the Sierra Madre in comparison with it. But in the same way, Sierra Madre catches me up, like no matter how many times I watch it, this movie just completely caught me up on it. I was so absorbed. I liked it quite a bit. I mean, it's Chirac-like in the sense that it is just this huge repository of ideas, not all of which work as well as you might want. I mean, I feel like some of the motivations and some of the conflicts 
in the second half of the film in particular are a bit contrived, but it gets off to such a strong start and it's so lively all the time. I mean, you just, it's electrifying, you know, and that's, that's the Spike Lee thing. He just, he doesn't hold back. I mean, there's just a candor to his work, both in terms of their thematic content and also their style, uh, where he's willing to take massive risks and engage in difficult conversations and present characters who are contradictory and there's so much fun to kind of wrestle with and the look of the film is really vivid and bright and just at the center is just an, a phenomenal Delroy Lindo performance I mean the, that's kind of the main attraction for me with this film is just how caught up I was in his emotions and in everything he brought to the table as an actor the performances everywhere are good but boy he's another level uh Delroy Lindo the finale of this film is pretty directly inspired by another film we could have paired it, which which is uh, Steel Helmet by Sam Fuller, which also climaxes with a group of people being holed up inside a temple and fighting off in, uh, hostile forces on the outside. It really struck me how much, you know, how, how many points of connection there are between Lee and Fuller, who who really was similarly prone to like here are a lot of big ideas stuffed into a movie that might not be big enough to contain them, but it's just so exciting to watch the directors try to to make it happen. There's probably more points of comparison there, but just seeing that quote of the steel helmet got me thinking in that direction. It's just the usual feeling that a messy movie that has too much ambition is still so much more exciting than a movie with uh, with no ambitions except to make some money at the box office. You know, you'd, you'd always rather see a a filmmaker like shooting for the stars and hitting the moon than a filmmaker who's uh, basically shooting to get some butts and some seats and like make a little money on opening weekend. What impresses me about this film in a lot of Spike Lee films, but I think this is maybe just the best example of his didacticism, but that's like a compliment. You know, the fact that he can impart so much information and ideas and lessons, you know, but in this very entertaining framework without ever, I mean, like this movie has footnotes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's very explicit about them, but it never stops being entertaining. And that's, I think, very directly rooted in Lee's style and his comfort with breaking fourth wall and breaking cinematic convention in order to kind of keep you engaged however he needs to do so. You know, he switches modes in order to fit what is happening in the film and what he is trying to express in that moment. It's interesting to me how much the film mirrors Muhammad Ali's perspective about Vietnam, you know, and about what it really means uh, in terms of what fighting in it meant for black soldiers and what fighting for America has meant for black soldiers throughout the decades and, and centuries. I mean, that's such a vital and important point to make, and it's something we don't get very often. And it also allows him to look at things from the other side a little bit. I mean, it's not you know, like Heaven and Earth or something, the Oliver Stone film, which I don't even like, but at least that was trying to tell things from the perspective of a native. But um, here, you know, at least he's showing you the result of the war as it's affecting the people who actually live there. And then it, it gives you a perspective on a character like the Vietnamese, you know, radio DJ. Is that the right word? Hanoi Hannah. Yeah, Hanoi Hannah, a real person. Right. And that we have always recognized and, you know, correctly that there's a propagandistic purpose to what she's doing, but what she's saying is true in, in, mm -hmm. in terms of like what she's trying to communicate to black soldiers is absolutely correct. And so to hear it in the context of this movie and this movie's perspective on things is valuable and exciting. I thought it feels so much like just the meeting point between the DJ and do the right thing, mm -hmm. serving as sort of an outside uh, viewpoint on, on the entire situation and the DJ and the warriors. Uh, who also kind of serves to to narrate and pull people through, but also is a black woman with just an incredibly mellifluous voice seen mostly in extreme, I think actually seen solely in extreme close up as she just kind of whispers the updates about the night into the microphone. The DJ is just, it's uh, such an invaluable character to a, a certain kind of film that mm -hmm. feels like it's it's closely aligned with music and the emotions of music and uh, needs somebody to give an excuse for that music and the way it kind of pulls people through the story. Like Good Morning Vietnam? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is exactly what I was thinking. I mean, that was being referenced here, right? There's so many references in this movie. Mm -hmm. That was, Hanoi Hannah was clearly a reference to Good Morning Vietnam. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, that, that point where the script just has no lines for her and she just like riffs like crazy for five yeah. minutes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, so what? What else about this movie? I mean, the performances are a pretty big deal. I think. I mean, uh, Lindo especially i mean one thing is like what did you make of lindo's maga hat like what in that whole situation i mean every interview with him has asked about the maga hat and every interview he has shared the anecdote that he took it off his head in between takes (laughs) uh you know and he was and in his initial discussions with lee he asked like can he be an arch conservative but not a trumpian guy like it like lindo was uncomfortable with that aspect of the character until he wasn't until he sort of did the actorly work of empathizing with his character and finding the roots of what brought Paul to the place where he feels such betrayal from his country and is so wounded on so many fronts that he has invested in the the guy who says he can fix it you know it is a tragic arc you know there's there's no qualifiers there at the same time it does feel like shorthanding like character shorthanding to say like this guy's lost his mind you know he's (laughs) a ptsd riddled veteran who doesn't know who his friends are and who goes off the deep end early and then frequently and then at the expense of everybody who cares about him and sticking him in a maga hat and presenting him as somebody who's like actively acting against his best interests seems like just sort of an early tease for the way he's going to be actively acting against his best interests throughout the rest of the film, not to mention everybody else's. What's also interesting about the MAGA hat specifically is that it ends up on other people's heads. And I'm stealing an observation from a review. I can't pull up exactly who's. I think it was probably Bilga's at Vulture, but like the MAGA hat ends up on various characters' heads, various American characters' heads at different times. And maybe not even just American characters, but sort of the idea that to an extent we all own Trump, you know, like we're, we're all part of the greater system that got us here and like there's even a line with david in the film where he kind of or an interaction with the the french lamb folks you know in the bar where they bring up trump and he you know is is, i didn't vote for him blah 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 but there's still sort of this sense of yeah but he's your guy and i think the the maga hat especially in the context of another country is alluding to that as well beyond just the character of paul but it's also it's very identifiable as an object of Paul's. And so when when it ends up on the head of a Vietnamese soldier at the end of the movie, it's like Fred C. Dobbs' stolen boots, uh, which are used to identify the men that murdered him. It really strikes me that it's never really commented on in the movie. I, I was expecting a, a bigger reveal where uh, our kind of remaining heroes or, or combatants see that on one of the soldiers and realize, well, their friend is probably dead. You know, it, like various other things, it was taken away from him before he was murdered. Spike Lee doesn't ever underline that. He just sort of visually reminds you that this is out there. And if they have the capacity to take it in, given all of the other things that they're managing, like here's this very clear sign that the standing in front of them is one of the people that murdered their friend. Yeah, looping back to what Genevieve was saying, uh, I, I um, you know, traveled abroad during the George W. Bush administration at uh, the height of the Iraq War, and, and uh, you can't really distance yourself from your country in those situations. You are the country, you know, are a representative of the country, that, uh, just as the president is as well, and it's a pretty uncomfortable position to be in. But I think it also, I mean, not in the subtlest way, but I, I feel like it really deepens and emphasizes how far he's drifted from the ideals of Norman. And I think it kind of deepens the impact of their scenes together when uh, in the, sort of the fantasy sequence that, that reunites them. Yeah, it's a betrayal of another sort to Norman. Mm-hmm. He's someone who is uh, haunted by this betrayal of his friend, even accidental or otherwise. And it almost, you can kind of see how he would kind of keep falling down that slippery slope. Yes, But it, it should be noted that Lee had a co-writer, Kevin Wilmot, who was also his co-writer on Black Klansman. And Chirac, and, too. And, and Chirac, yeah. yeah, sort of, yeah they've, uh, he's been a part of Lee's sort of reascendance in, in the last few years. Um, but also before they got their hands on it, it was a spec script written by the writing team behind The Rocketeer, of all, of all things, mm. you know. And um, it was about white soldiers returning to – or white veterans returning to Vietnam – 
and obviously to be directed at one point by Oliver Stone, which yeah, uh, yeah, would have right. been a very different movie. Yeah, yeah. So, so this, this film has sort of a, an interesting progression in the writing of it. I think so. It's it's yeah. not unfair to uh, to use a collective pronoun when when referring to the creators. Sure. We were just talking earlier about auteur erasure, right. and given what an auteur uh, Spike Lee demonstrably is, I mm-hmm. I don't want to fall into the Absolutely. the mistake of uh, you know pretending that this movie was like made by a. And not just by a collective, but by like an abstraction, as opposed to a man with a very, very specific point of view. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, th- I think the the Wilmot connection is really important because Wilmot had done a film that I admired a while ago that he directed called CSA: Confederate States of America. Did anyone see that oh, one? Yeah, yeah. I didn't see it. it. Great kind of yeah. a kind of a faux documentary satire about yeah. you know what if the Confederates you know ran things. Um, and uh, it was very sharp. And if you think about the films that Wilmot has worked on, you know, this and Black Klansman and, and, and Chirac, they're really f- suffused with, well, a lot of stuff, but also with history. And, and uh, I, mean, I think he brings a lot to the table. I mean, that's just speculating. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the process is. But you can kind of see a certain density, I almost, uh, in hist- a lot of historical context to um, the scripts that Wilmot has has written with Spike Lee. Well, should we talk about some of the Lee signatures in this film? Because there are a lot of them. Like talking directly into the Mm -hmm. camera at one of the most dramatic moments to deliver an impassioned monologue that is pretty much just like given directly to the audience in a a kind of like forced, uncomfortable intimacy of a one-on-one moment. Yes, that's one. Ding! <laughs> so, what did you all think of the decision to really not cover up the age of the actors in the flashbacks? It's like the anti-Irishman. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't recast them. It's just like, you know, this, you know, let's just put them in this context and you're going to have to just play pretend that they're younger. Well, here's here's the weird thing. I found it really distracting earlier in the film when he seemed to be trying to disguise it, when we kept seeing those actors in shadow or from behind or under trees and like shot in elusive sort of ways, it kept taking me out of the story because I was thinking the entire time. So did he recast them? It, it looks like Norm Peters, at least, is the same man, but it's going to be a lot harder to play off Clark Peters or Delroy Lindo or Isaiah Whitlock Jr. as young as they need to be in those scenes. So I kept watching for it and not being able to see their faces and just like it took me out of the movie trying. Later when you see them all just like sitting around together and it's it's manifestly obvious that it's the same actors. I was like, okay, yeah, that, that's that's the choice he made, so that's the choice we're living with. And then I didn't have to think about it at all anymore. Mm-hmm. And I read an interview with him where he was asked about it directly and he said, you know, for one thing, we didn't have that kind of money. Like nobody was going to pay for mm-hmm. the the aging. And I hate the kind of films where they cast somebody else as the younger version of the actor and then it's distracting because all you can think about is like is that what that guy would have grown up to be like to look like i i don't think so it doesn't work for me so i like the fact i i don't necessarily a thousand percent love it within the context of the film but as far as he made a distinctive choice for good reasons and he just rolled with it like i'm perfectly fine with that I think also it uh, in the context of a film about how the past and the present collapse into one mm-hmm. another. I think I think it works as that. I mean, it has just a changing of the aspect ratios in film stock has a kind of a dreamlike quality already. So I it, I once I realized that's what they were doing, I was like kind of like you, Atasha. I was like, oh, I'm on board with this. Yeah, and I think it also works within a story about memory because you know this is how these characters today see themselves. So, like, if you're thinking of these flashbacks as their memories in their heads, it kind of makes sense that they would look how they do now. The version of themselves they're most familiar with it actually. The effect reminded me, and this is a little different, but when we discussed the uh, Breaking Bad movie El Camino on uh, on our Patreon, and we kind of talked about how. Jesse Plemons looks so different now than he did during Breaking Bad and how it it was a little jarring. I made the point that like what made it work for me is that we are seeing that character through Jesse's eyes and he's sort of like a lot bigger and more imposing in that context. So it kind of makes sense for him to be bigger like in that framing of the film. So I think it was it I did sort a sort of similar mental gymnastics of just like yeah like this this is just about perspective you know it's it's how these characters are seeing themselves in this moment 
and I guess you could frame this as as a, a shortcut or something, but in that framing of it being a decision about memory, then it becomes like an artistic choice. And I like it uh, better that way. Where I did get hung up was just on the chronology of how old these characters are actually supposed to be, because it's been 50 years since they left country, more than that, because we see the scene where uh, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. Was, was shot, and that was 68. So we're over 50 years removed. And, you know, even if they were extremely young soldiers, you know, we're, we're still talking about men in their 70s, which is... Okay, I, I guess I can buy that these men are, you know, very hardy 70s. Well, not in Otis's case, maybe. But it really kind of came screeching to a halt for me with uh, the character of Otis's daughter. Yep. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> Same deal. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Who looks to be in her 30s at absolute most. And I, I had the exact same reaction. Yeah. Like, it, all right, so does, is this movie not taking place in the present? Is, <laughs> is she also? MAGA hat. Yeah, I did a little math as we were sitting here. And it's like, if Delroy Lindo was born in 52, so he could have been a 19-year-old serving in 1971. Uh, I think Clark Peters is about the same age. Isaiah Whitlock, but he so said he did three tours, so we know there. So he had to have been like eighteen but, and sixty-eight. So he, yeah, and, you know, and Norm Lewis looks younger than everyone because he is ten years younger than Norman yeah. Uh So I'm not sure. You know, this might not be an element uh, to obsess over, lest uh, lest you uh, be driven mad by it. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's a it's a weird choice, and she doesn't really act like, uh, say, the character's thirty or or thirty-five or whatever it is that she's appearing to be like even so she acts much younger she acts almost like a teenager so i can accept that like seeing the actors in the same roles when they're supposed to be playing 19 that we're we're dealing with some sort of memory play which lee has said that as well that the war is the most impactful time of their lives it's it's where their consciousnesses were raised it's where they kind of came into their own in terms of understanding black identity and and black power it's where they went through all of these traumatic like bonding and then separation experiences this war means so much to them that their present day personas are still living in the past. So he does intend for it to be read that way. But within that context, how exactly is is Otis's daughter meant to be taken? Like, either literally or like figuratively, imaginatively, symbolically, like what is she supposed to represent exactly? Well, okay, this is a good segue into my biggest issue with the film, which also brings us back to the Lee Hallmarks. And this is where I bring up the dolly shot at the, at the end of the <laughs> film, um, which is the rare Spike Lee dolly shot where people are smiling and happy. And I understand why it's there and, and what it means and how important it is to have this moment of of healing and this moment of Black joy after so much Black trauma. But to position it as a moment between Otis and his daughter Michonne, who has gotten no development and no arc. She's had two scenes, spoken maybe three or four lines, you know, to make her part of that moment. It felt like it reduced her to a prop in Otis's story, which she is, but it just really highlighted that fact of her character for me. And it made me you know, a little resentful of how this in this movie treats not just Michonne, but also her mother, um, Tien. Tien gets a, a little more agency and a little more to do, but they both kind of feel like elements that didn't have to be in this film. And I kind of wish they weren't, given how they're treated or not, as the case may be. The final scene is also such a such a it's almost played like a fantasy scene in some ways because everything is like so mm -hmm. flat and so like simplified to like I love you I love you too yeah I was I kind of expecting it to collapse as as like a dream or something yeah uh, me too absolutely I mean I was happy for the happy ending but it, it is it is a it is a peculiar scene a peculiar yeah I think it, I think I think you point out some ways in which peculiar bad but it also is just such a I found it kind of compelling in its own strange way too especially when you get to the people who were shot. 
it's also just sort of difficult to know how to take uh, Tian and Otis's relationship, given that we're told in a just an extremely offhand way that he has a wife and at least one child at home. Like he mm-hmm. has a family that he's going back to. There's no sense necessarily that he and Michonne are going to have a relationship going forward. Is he going to tell his family about her? Like he, he only just found out about her himself. What does any of this imply for the future? If more had been set up about like about his loneliness, about him not being in a relationship, you would see this as a kind of lost like romantic arc, a, a sort of feeling that these are people that loved and had to separate for whatever reason. And there's some sort of catharsis in their reunion. But instead, it's kind of like, oh, hey, my my old side piece from the war has a child who loves me and is an adult that I've never had a relationship with. That's interesting. Gonna head home now. It's like, what are we meant to do with all of this in terms of the larger narrative or in terms of uh, Otis's character? I think another thing is is the use of music, which has always been um, at the fore of a lot of Spike Lee films. There's long been at the fore of uh, Spike Lee films. I mean, it's not exclusively songs from Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, but you do get a lot of songs from Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, which I think it's certainly period appropriate. It's a 1971 album. It's also just a gorgeous album. <laughs> what a what a great reminder to have it all over this movie. But I think also it really plays into the collapse of the past and the present. I mean, and it's it's an album that states ongoing problems, war, poverty, racism, all this stuff, in in very simple terms. And uh, Gay always kind of phrases them as sort of an, an affront to what we what we should be doing and what God wants us to do on Earth. And everything he's pointing out about 1971 is just as true in 2020. So I, I think that kind of connection between the past and present uh, is used really powerfully in this movie. And speaking of connections between the past and the present, we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between the Five Bloods and the Treasure of the Sierra Madre. We bury it for now. They ask, we say the VC got it. They don't, we come back and collect. You mean rip it off? We ain't ripping off shit. Who feel like they're ripping something off? We was the very first people to die for this red, white, and blue. Yeah, that's right. It was a soul brother, Christmas Addicts at the motherfucking Boston Massacre. We've been dying for this country from the very get. Hoping one day they give us our rightful place. All they give us was a foot up our black asses. But fuck that. I say the USA owe us. We built this bitch. So what you saying, blood? I'm saying we repossess this gold. Like they about to come repossess your cash your convertible now. <laughs> <laughs> We repossess this gold for every single black boot that never made it home. Every brother and sister stolen from Mother Africa to Jamestown, Virginia, way back in 1619. We give this gold to our people. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Well, one of the things they have in common is is the lead character, I guess if we can call Humphrey Bogart and, and Delroy Lindo, the leads of their films, sink into paranoia and madness, right, Keith? Yeah, exactly. I mean, there are, there are many parallels, uh, connections and echoes and uh, of uh, uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre and uh, Defy Bloods. But I mean, with Lindo's Paul and the Treasure of the Sierra Madre's Fred Dobbs, it's a really strong connection because we have two characters who lose it along the way uh, on strong personalities from the start, but once they actually achieve their goal of, of uh, obtaining treasure, become gripped by a kind of madness about keeping it, about everyone conspiring against them. Um, I, th- I think in some ways with Paul, it's almost on a cosmic scale where it's all joined together, not only with uh, his need or his desire for money, but with the, his dis- the way he feels the country has disappointed him, his wife's death. His uh, son's perceived failings, which seem to be uh, almost entirely in his mind, seems like a good kid. And finally, you know, his his sort of political 
awakening, or, or if you want to call it that, <laughs> it, it's all kind of kind of grouped together with him. And you know, they both have monologues. They both have like sort of they both have like Lady Macbeth moments. Paul's is much longer and uh, more extended, but it's it's I, it feels like it's a conscious echo of the Treasure of the Sierra Madre. So those are two very compelling characters, both compellingly played, but uh, different you know different performances for sure. There's also just a sense that either of them, the amount of harm they could do would be so limited in civilization. But both of these stories take place in very isolated uh, places where any kind of physical harm is uh, terrifying, just a terrifying prospect. Because how are you going to get medical treatment? How are you going to get to safety? How are you going to navigate all of the people and threats and hazards that you have to navigate while wounded? There's just a, there's a sense as you see them slowly losing it of like, I, I have to not just deal with this person in the moment and in every moment uh, that's going to come from here. I have to deal with him. Like, how far did we have to hump into the wilderness to get here? And how far are we going to have to go back out uh, in order to to get away from him? Like, you're really trapped in an isolation bubble Despite both of these movies taking place in fairly large physical outdoor uh, spaces, those spaces are, are very cloistered in terms of uh, like how far you can go to, to get away from your fellow man. I think it's really interesting that Dobbs continues to control the burrows and like with them, the goods, as he keeps putting it. Uh, and as a result, people are kind of stuck with him. But Paul sets off into the brush alone. Like he actually takes himself out of the scenario and everybody can kind of breathe a, a breath of fresh air. There's certainly the question of where is he in the brush and is he coming for us and when? There's a lot of questions in this movie about like, when do we safely sleep and how? because we don't know how our erstwhile companion is going to take advantage of that. But the fact that Paul manages to isolate himself from his companions and thus reduce the threat uh, is one of the big things that separates these two characters. A similarity, though, is, is that you know, he's away from places of consequences and it causes his like sort of whatever morality has to break down with both characters, but also kind of corrupts those around him into doing what he wants them to do, both Paul and and Dobbs uh, kind of compels them against their will in some ways to committing the same sort of crimes that he's committing. Well, one connection I had wanted to make too in terms of group dynamics is a, is a contrast, which is that in this Treasure of the Sierra Madre, they embark on this quest as strangers, and, and in Defy Bloods, they embark on this quest as comrades. And it, it ultimately doesn't matter really <laughs> i mean it matters i mean in, in, in sense in the sense that the relationships are colored in a different way but in terms of the way it breaks down and when it breaks down and what it breaks down over they kind of end up converging anyway that it doesn't doesn't necessarily matter and i guess howard in the treasure of sierra madre would, would tell us as much that is that once you're in front of this gold it changes you and it doesn't matter what relationships you have going into it and it ends up being revealing of the person that you are, or at least the person that you are at that point in your life. It's also interesting that both groups, whether they are strangers or, or comrades to begin with, have at you know some point in the story, another stranger or strangers sort of enter the dynamic. We talked about Cody and Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and then you have the landmine organization people in The Five Bloods. And in both cases, I think maybe to tie this a little bit back to to the last connection, the introduction of those uh, outside elements kind of trigger the paranoia of our you know main characters or, or they're like pushes it to the next level. Because, you know, in The Five Bloods after the Oh my gosh, <laughs> we 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 didn't talk in the first half about the the whole landmine thing, but oh, was anyone else just like tearing their hair out until that first landmine blew up because you just knew yes. it was it was coming and it was like I just I need yeah. this I need this Chekhov's landmine to go off already. <laughs> um, but you know, like after they sort of band together to save David from this terrifying situation, that's kind of when Paul loses it and, and turns on these people who just helped him, you know. And it's it's not that different from the dynamic with Cody. Like, obviously, Cody arrived for a more self-serving reason. But as we discussed in the first half, he does have a sense of 
he's you know he, he's nice about it <laughs> at least you know but it really kind of sets Dobbs off on this path of you know murder yeah uh Cody forces his way in because of desperation or greed depending on how you want to read it and also it can be two things but the group of landmine cleaners like they don't ask to be part of this group they come across them accidentally and immediately fall into the same trap of Cody as like we can't keep you here we can't let you go we have to assume the most paranoid and terrible things about you and there's just uh, perpetually kind of after that encounter as opposed to the earlier encounter uh, at the bar there's just sort of a feeling of like why did our bad luck lead us here cody put himself in the situation deliberately as a gamble but they didn't ask for any of it and their kind of exhaustion with being caught up in somebody else's drama is one of the like kind of like lesser underlined but just like really keenly observed and uh, observable uh, things i think about the the whole paranoia sequence there's also i think a really interesting aspect of this is that there are more interlopers there are more strangers in both movies coming from the native populations in the five bloods there are the vietnamese soldiers who are trying to help themselves to the gold and possibly kill off all of the foreigners after letting them find it in treasure of the sierra madre you have the same thing with the bandits but also with the local indians who are portrayed in a way that almost just just feels very anti-Western. It feels like a kind of a, an early and surprisingly sympathetic way of looking at a native population, portraying these Indians as peaceful and civilized and kind of like living in their own little paradise that has nothing to do with outsiders until they, they need Howard's help. So you have kind of the overstated Mexican stereotype of the era uh, of these, you know, kind of like greasy, violent, like thieves. And then you have like a, a completely different group that are also natives that are presented in this almost idealistic, like noble savage kind of way. And it's just, it's like, let's get all of the era's stereotypes in the <laughs> same place together. It feels like the Five Bloods doesn't fall into the stereotyping, but it, it does kind of underline how both of these movies have a, an element of, you know, this is our country that you're taking wealth out of. Like, you, you're interlopers here, you're outsiders, you don't have a right to any of this, uh, but you're coming in and, and taking natural resources, in both cases gold, uh, which – you know, gold in bar in a box form, maybe not the most natural of resources, but just in, in both cases, maybe taking something that doesn't belong to you and never did belong to you uh, at the expense of like local people living in poverty who would like it just as much as you would. Well, yeah. And in, in The Five Bloods, there's also the fact of who those gold bars were originally yep. intended for. You know, they were supplied by the, the U.S. government for native Vietnamese to fight, basically. So, you know, it wasn't a natural resource that they were stealing. You know, it's a lot naughtier, like who's being stolen from in this case, which is, you know, fitting for the film, I think. Was there a sense that the locals who do confront them with machine guns, that they know the history of these bars or, or not? Or is that just kind of something that we know and they don't know? I think it's implied, you're right? I think Jean Reno told them because he's in, in cahoots with them and he... Mm. He plays a character who is supposedly going to, you know, fence the gold for them and ends up double crossing them. So I don't think we actually see him learn the precise provenance of the gold. But I think given what we see of that character, we can maybe assume that he he knows like he's, you know, he seems uh, pretty canny in, in that respect. I love the word cahoots. <laughs> very applicable to both of these. We keep people are in cahoots all over both of these films. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a favorite for sure. <laughs> Uh, this is a, you know, kind of a smaller connection, but it's also pretty big because it has to do with how, how both films conclude. When our protagonist, uh, Paul and Dobbs, meet their end, is accompanied by this sort of grim irony of, you know, what they are carrying with them. In, in Dobbs's case, the gold is, you know, scattered to the winds and, and looks like sand, you know, and returned to where it came from. The irony of that is recognized by Howard and Curtin at the end with that that last. Laughing. And we, we don't have that sort of underlining into Five Bloods, 
But we do have a similar moment when Paul is, you know, wandering in the jungle after he's been bitten by the snake, I think. And he kind of falls down the embankment and his sack of gold is like caught on a tree branch, like out of out of reach. You know, I, I don't think we ever get resolution of I think that gold just hangs there. I think it's just left there. So in both cases, the, you know, what drove these these men to madness is just kind of, you know, taken it, away by nature. I mean, yeah. he, he he does kind of say the line like he, he says something about uh, like God's sense yeah. of humor. Yeah, he does. But in both it. cases, there is sort of a sense of like the wilds have taken back their their gold. Yeah, I didn't really think of it in that way, but you're absolutely right. One way, way more thoroughly than the other. Yeah. <laughs> Given the norther uh, scattering every fleck of gold back to the mountain <laughs> that it came from, maybe a little more permanent than, oh, it's it's just, in a, it's it's just, just dangling a off a branch. <laughs> yeah. it's, just, it's like, it's right there. It's like eight feet up. <laughs> Who would find it where he was? <laughs> yeah. It's as good as blown to the wind. There is that. I just want to think a little bit about the the way our two uh, kind of anti-heroes of villains, heroes turned villains, heel face turners, however you want to think of just Paul uh, and Dobbs. Connecting it's like however you want to connect Paul, Paul and Dobbs. Dobbs. <laughs> we didn't talk in the in the first half about exactly how Dobbs dies. And if we'd gone on for another uh, you know, hour about remarkable scenes in that movie, I think we would have eventually got to it because it's so grim. You know exactly what's going to happen. You know that these bandits are ruthless murderers. You know that they have no compunctions about killing him. You know that he's alone. That's yet another thing that's set up early on when Howard talks about how they would kill a man for his shoes. And when they run across Dobbs at the watering hole, one of them literally pulls his pant legs up to like to look at his shoes. You know exactly what's coming. But that scene plays out just excruciatingly as you wonder who's going to get the final bluff in because both Goldhat and Dobbs are are just kind of like bluffing at each other trying to figure out exactly what the truth of the situation is and whether they can get away from the situation with with what they want and in the five bloods the equivalent scene which kind of borrows from the bandit's death at the end of treasure the sierra madre where they're forced to mm-hmm. dig their own graves and then and then be shot and lie in them we get it playing out described and then actually watching it happen over the course of treasure the sierra madre it's much more abrupt in five bloods but it's very clearly a reference but there's much less of a sense of paul having a chance of talking his way out of that in both cases, you pretty much know where it's going, but you still have to kind of like watch the the grim reality as both men face the fact that they're going to die and then just continue like to eke out like one precious second after another uh, as they wait for the end to come. And then in the end, both of their deaths are, are pretty brutal and pretty lonely. So on that happy note... Uh, the <laughs> Speaking of, of the... brutal and lonely, let's just leave Tasha <laughs> dangling with that thought. The Treasure of the Sierra Madre is currently streaming on HBO Max and is available digitally from the usual sources. To Five Bloods is a Netflix exclusive. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, I feel like I'm repeating myself a little bit because uh, I somewhat recently recommended a, a Spike Lee filmed stage production as, as a Your Next Picture Show. I talked about Passing Strange. I don't think I did that when we on the Spike Lee episode we did on Malcolm X and Black Klansmen, but I might have. Point is that I think that a sort of corner of Lee's filmography that doesn't get discussed as much, but I like quite a lot, is when he does film plays or musicals. It was recently announced that he's going to do a David Burns uh, Broadway show, uh, so looking very forward to that. But yes. today I'm going to recommend a much smaller scale film play called Passover, which is a filmed version of the play written by Antoinette Noindu, uh, which premiered in Chicago in 2018. Um, at the time, the play was the center of a controversy involving the Chicago Sun-Times theater critic, Hetty Weiss, 
uh, who wrote a review that many considered racist for its critique of the play's depiction of a white police officer who brutalizes the two main characters. I don't know if any of you remember that, uh, but it was a, a vaguely. Yeah, it was a fairly major reckoning for Chicago theater and kind of for criticism in, in general at the time. I can't say for certain that's how the play came to Spike Lee's attention, but he apparently read the play after its Steppenwolf production had closed and was impressed enough that he got in touch with Nwandu about remounting the production for him to film. Uh, the resulting movie was released on Amazon Prime in 2018, uh, and to call it timely would be an understatement. Uh, obviously, and tragically, police violence in Chicago and across the country is nowhere near a new phenomenon or a recent phenomenon, but what makes Passover feel so especially relevant to this moment in the protests against police brutality that, that are happening is how it captures the way systemic racism creates a cycle of violence that actively works to prevent anyone from breaking the cycle or upending the system. It does so by riffing explicitly on Waiting for Godot, uh, which Nwandu reframes with two young black men on the corner of 64th and Martin Luther King Drive, uh, which has a longstanding reputation as Chicago's most dangerous block. They are named Moses and Kitsch, played by John Michael Hall and Julian Park. Parker, respectively, and they are essentially trapped on this stretch of sidewalk by the angel of death that they call the police. Uh, it's primarily a two-hander with a couple of notable scenes involving a couple of white interlopers, and it's driven almost entirely by the dynamic between Moses and Kitsch, who joke and argue and trade obscenities and talk about what awaits them in the, quote, promised land beyond the block. It's a really profound and moving and gutsy play that I don't want to give away too much about, uh, but it's very clear why Lee would be drawn to this material, and he brings a really nuanced cinematic touch to the staging of it. Uh, the most significant thing he does is convene an entirely black audience for the performance, most of them teenagers, bust in from Chicago's South Side to watch the performance at Steppenwolf, and uh, he provides strategic glimpses of their reactions throughout the performance, which graphs this really interesting extra text element onto the play. Uh, he also plays a lot with different camera setups, going beyond just like wide shots of the stage and uses the direct-to-camera address technique that he is so fond of uh, in a really powerful way. I really do find Lee's approach to film theater to be really exciting and visceral, and this is a very good example of it that's at the same time very different from Passing Strange, which I also recommend. And because it's a play instead of a musical, it's pretty short, only 70 minutes. So it's a quick watch, but no less powerful for its brevity. If you have Amazon Prime, it is on there. And I would definitely recommend taking a look at Passover. Two words, Passover. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where can people find it? Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. Yeah. Is it on Amazon Prime? <laughs> <laughs> which which versions wow. of Prime, Amazon Prime can I Video? Find it? Amazon Prime Video. So God. wait, I'm sorry. Is it on Amazon Max or Amazon Go? <laughs> uh, Tasha, right. what about you? Well, I've spent a, a good chunk over the past week working on this project. Um, Letterboxd recently highlighted just a, a cinema fan, not in, not part of really film Twitter, not really part of the film writing world. His name's Adam Davey, and he has curated a list of films about black life. It's 1700 plus films at this point, um, broken demand down by genre category. So it's, it's easy to navigate and to find things. It's really spectacular work. He's written a lot about like, he's very into the criterion collection. He's very into classical cinema and he has just some really, I think, interesting and in-depth and thoughtful analysis of a lot of cinema, like from the, from the forties and fifties and, uh, just throughout, but as a sort of hobby uh, for the past three years, he's been curating this film list. And I talked to him for Polygon. I ended up spending two hours on Zoom with him. We asked him to recommend one movie from each of his categories. And the film that he recommended for African cinema was this movie called Black Girl. And it was one of a couple of films on the list that uh, as soon as he, he told me about it, he told me why I picked it, I had to go watch it. As it happens, the Criterion Channel is currently offering a lot of movies made by Black filmmakers about Black lives for free uh, on their their website. You can just go directly there and watch it. If you search for Black Girl on the site, it will ask you to log in or sign up. Um, but you can also just click on the video and watch the entire movie. It's only about an hour long. 
It's a, a Senegalese French co-production, um, the first movie made by Ousmane Simbene. And it was uh, kind of a, a cause celeb in its time uh, because it's considered the first uh, sub-Saharan African movie, basically uh, the first dynamic, like well-known cinematic entry uh, into, into world cinema for like that area of the world. It's about this young woman from Dakar who signs on with a French family as their their housemaid. She's very excited to get a job. It's post-independence, but but not very far post-independence. And she feels like she can better herself, um, you know, make make money and come up in the world uh, by working for these white folks. And they invite her to come to France. Uh, and then in France, she's expecting to be a nanny, and instead they turn her into a housemaid and cook. A great deal of the movie is just, it's kind of like her operating, navigating uh, France and what her expectations and her life in Dakar was like versus what her her current life is like. Uh, And it's very moving. It's very emotional. It's unbelievably visually beautiful. It's a black and white film where just the the characters' skin colors could not be more important to the setting, um, but also just where the the fashion and the architecture and the layout and the settings of the time. Again, you have that feeling of like, this is all documentary. It's a really exciting movie. I like, like, it's not an exciting movie. There are no car chases. There are no explosions. <laughs> but in terms of an African filmmaker, like taking the lessons of the French new wave and putting it into a story that's just really vividly and intensely about what his country was, was doing at the time and about the mentality of it. It's a pretty amazing historical document. It's a pretty amazing central acting job. It's a pretty amazing escalation of personal tensions between uh, the Dakar woman and the French woman as they kind of like like battle for supremacy in the confines of this, this very small and, and claustrophobic yet, yet beautiful little household. And if you watch it for free on Criterion Channel's website, and then just wait a little while, a 10-minute uh, interview with the actress many, many years later will play. And she will tell you some really remarkable things about that film, including that she made her, all of her own really spectacular dresses for it. Uh, she's got a lot of memories about making that film, and she's a really lively and interesting character. So, uh, yeah, I, I strongly recommend this, especially if right now, in the middle of uh, of the protests and the kind of reconsiderations of how Black people are seen and treated in America, a lot of people are, are demonstrably seeking out books about racism and books about uh, how, how Black people are, are treated and portrayed and how they live their lives and what they, they think about American systems and about not just policing, but racism and prejudice in general, as people are seeking out more and more culture made by like Black citizens and, and Black creators, I think we're seeing a, a similar surge towards films made by Black filmmakers. And this is just like uh, not only an exciting piece of history, it's a film where race vividly plays a role, but not in the way we're used to seeing it uh, today and, and right now in this moment. So uh, Black Girl on the Criterion Channel's website, it's currently streaming for free. I don't know how long that'll go on, uh, but I recommend people grab it while they have the chance if they don't already subscribe to the Criterion Channel. Scott, what about you? Yeah, well, let me. I would back you up on on just heading to the Criterion Channel in general. If you don't have a subscription already and you want to see more films by Black filmmakers, I've been highlighting a few for this for the New York Times watching newsletter and caught up with a lot of things I haven't seen in films like Losing Ground and Cane River. And I rewatched Daughters of the Dust, which of course is a kind of a, becomes a classic of sorts. Uh, a lot of good stuff on there. There's a ton of Oscar Micheaux stuff that I've never seen that's on there. It's, it's a lot and it's free uh, if you don't have a subscription. Yeah. In addition to going to the Criterion Channel and, and checking out their free selection, there's a great selection of just free cinema right now uh, yeah. by by black creators that a lot of different outlets and uh, studios are, are putting out there. And it's it's pretty easy to search for that. And then on top of everything else, I would strongly suggest going to Letterboxd and following Adam Davey and uh, reading his list. You can find it if you search for Letterboxd uh, Black Lives Cinema. Um, you'll you'll find that list and it's just an invaluable guide. Like he he limited it to three stars and up movies. Um, and he's got it broken down so it's easy to navigate. So it's it's a great starting point. Oh, neat. Letterboxed. 
So I'm going to switch gears. <laughs> uh, actually, not switch gears in terms of where you can find the movie. This is something I've recommended that's on Criterion Channel. Um, but uh, the year 2019 was a very big year for the Stephen Sondheim Musical Company. Towards the beginning of the year, the IFC mockumentary series, Documentary Now, staged, I think, the best episode. I don't think anyone would disagree. It's the best episode of the third season called uh, uh, Original... It's for words under scaffolding. Co-op. <laughs> the staff can do anything. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Co-op was was the name of that episode, um, and and uh, and it was a you know a scrupulous or at least at least we could trust was a scrupulous recreation of the D. A. Pennebaker film original cast album Company, which is about the recording of that uh, record, and then of course. Later in 2019, uh, there were two songs back-to-back from Company featured in Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, uh, most notably being, uh, you know, Adam Driver singing Being Alive. So both of those occasions would cause one to want to seek out the Pennebaker original, but it has it just wasn't available at all. It hasn't been available to stream in quite some time. But Criterion uh, Channel has solved that problem, and they now have uh, not only the Pennebaker film, but also a comment- the commentary track to go along with it, and a brand new uh, Zoom conversation <laughs> with all with all of the creators of the documentary now wow. <laughs> episode. Uh, John Mulaney and, and his whole group, cast and director, and the whole the whole bit. It's like nine of them. Um, so that's on there too. Uh, but I wanted to focus on original cast album company, and it's just, which is just remarkable. It is done in the the Pennebaker direct cinema style. It's really just about trying to capture the moment, and also kind of like uh, the amount of time it took to make. I mean, it was originally that the, the Pennebaker had originally intended it as the the pilot of a television series, uh, series, a documentary series that was going to be just about the recordings of different Broadway cast albums, which would have been which would have been amazing. But that didn't that uh, did not come to pass, uh, as you learn in the opening titles. But what he has here is a fourteen hour session compressed into one hour, and uh, it, but it, that still gives you a sense of just you know the joys and also the grind and the exhaustion of trying to trying to do something like this and you and you just get these amazing things you get Stephen Sondheim in his black turtleneck chain smoking and and saying incredible things and you get you know Elaine Stritch mm-hmm. singing going getting through ladies who lunch which is kind of the like the climax of yeah. the film she and she's absolutely exhausted and her voice is shot and and she's still kind of pressing through it in her inimitable way and and uh in the smoking is just unbelievable <laughs> in this movie how did anyone I mean, sing I, I see this movie too scott how did anyone sing in this era with all that smoke in the air no i well my favorite shot of the movie is i uh, uh, early the, an early number um you know when the entire company is singing together and one guy <laughs> one of this one guy has a lit cigarette that he's just he can't he can't smoke it. It's just dangling from his <laughs> finger as he's singing along with the rest of the cast. It's so good. And uh, so it's just it's a, just a great piece of history. The music, of course, is incredible. Uh, you know, I mean, Sondheim is, is Sondheim. And um, and you get to see just these l- legendary figures doing their thing. I just, I, I, I thought it was a treat. So that that's on Criterion Channel, uh, original cast album company. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. It is. I actually, when Co-op came out last year, I almost recommended original cast recording company like uh, for a year next picture show but you could only see it like cut up into pieces on youtube uh in a in a mm-hmm. bad transfer so i just like i didn't feel like i could in good conscience uh, recommend watching it that way so i'm i'm very glad now not only that other people can see it but that i can rewatch it in a preferable form <laughs> Definitely, it's nice and short. It's nice, yeah. and a little, little bit less than an hour. How we're we're recommending short things this this week. Oh, all, all of us are yeah. like well under ninety yeah. minutes. Yeah, I mean, people well, we, have, we uh, people our have our limited main, time. Yeah. Our main films are our main films are both over two hours, so, so this is good. Uh, Keith, what about you? You got a short something short for us? You know, no standard length and uh, totally totally uh, not relevant to anything we've been talking about. But I, I'd never seen. I saw a little bit of it. 
a long time ago on cable. I'd never seen Joe versus the Volcano, and I was I was kind of following a uh, train of thought from from the Nicolas Cage book I'm writing to check out something else relevant in in my own in some way <laughs> to what I was writing about. Uh, so I caught up with the Tom Hanks starring uh, film Joe versus the Volcano, which is uh, uh, written and directed by John Patrick Shanley, the playwright who wrote uh, Moonstruck, and it is such a strange movie and and i find it really quite winning um for those of you mm-hmm. don't know it is um uh, tom hanks stars as uh joe who works in a uh, sort of uh terry gilliam like uh office uh, in new york uh doing uh, mindless work and he finds out that he has a uh, a deadly condition called the brain cloud brain and cloud. it's sort of uh, <laughs> you know conscripted into jump into a volcano uh so uh a um, a billionaire played by uh, Joel, uh, Lloyd Bridges can get material for his superconductors, which is only available on this island. It's a very strange, super whimsical. Uh, if you're allergic to twee, do not watch this movie. But if you're not <laughs> allergic to twee, uh, it's, I think you might find it delightful. Uh, Meg Ryan plays three roles over the course of the film, including a self-described liberty gibbet. I can't, can't even get the word out. Uh, it is a very, if you get on this wavelength, I think it's a delightful film. And I, I did. Uh, people hated this film at the time. I mean, some critics liked it. Roger Ebert liked it. A lot of critics hated it. Audiences hated it. The fact that Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan were allowed to team up for movies together after this is sort of a, <laughs> uh, a very strange thing because it was a huge flop. But uh, I don't know. I, I found I found it quite winning and uh, would recommend it. Uh, I'm not arguing that with you. Am I the last person to see this? I'm not arguing that with you. Yeah, yeah. Was it, was it, a, new, it was a new cult canon thing, wasn't it, Scott? Didn't you yeah, yeah I, I believe yeah. so. I, it does have a, a, a cult following of which I am certainly one. I, I think it's a wonderful movie. I was pretty late to it. I, I think I actually watched it for the first time because of that new cult canon column. So it was only maybe four or five years ago for me for the first time. But uh, watching it, I realized that in my personal experience, there are only two types of people. People who watched that movie when they were very young and are like utterly addicted to it and just and think it's fantastic. Genevieve on the Zoom call currently bouncing and waving. Uh, if 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 there was an it me uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> emoji in in Zoom, it would be popping up right now. And people who came to it in adulthood and hate it and don't understand it. I guess I don't hate it and I and I don't know that I don't understand it, but I definitely don't feel the love for it that people seem to have for it if they came to it at the right age, which I did not. <laughs> yeah. it's very beautiful though to cinemascope it's got those it's got some nice lush um you know island colors it's got abe vagoda and orange soda and all kinds of crazy stuff <laughs> the, a lot of luggage design is is really uh i mean like the cherry gilliam comparison is is really yeah. apt for that first part and then it gets even kind of crazier from there i also did just say that i like uh movies that are trying to do too much you know that are that are big ambitious weird movies uh, way more than i like uh petty little play it safe commercial movies so like i have a, a warm spot in my heart for this film uh, i just i don't have the unabashed like this is the movie that defined my my teen years kind of uh, feeling in some day you're, I mean, you're more of a turner and hooch type of person <laughs> <laughs> yeah but only turner uh, hooch hooch is terrible i, I hate hooch i'm on i'm on i'm a turner stan and a hooch hater And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out July 7th and July 14th. Keith, what's coming up next? On our next episodes of The Next Picture Show, we'll explore two films that pair comedy and music, but go beyond getting laughs with funny songs. First up, we'll revisit Christopher Guest's 2003 film A Mighty Wind. The third in a series of mockumentaries made with a cast of ensemble players, it focuses on a tribute concert that brings together three acts born in the New York folk revival of the early 1960s. Then we'll turn our attention to the North and discuss Eurovision, the story of Fire Saga, starring Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams as an Icelandic duo making an unlikely attempt at winning the annual Eurovision Song Contest. By the end, you too will have Ya Ya Ding Dong stuck in your head. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Treasures of Sierra Madre, The Five Bloods, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days, Genevieve? 
I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. And you know what? I'm also on Instagram at Genevieve Kosky. I honestly use Instagram way more than Twitter. So if you want to oh. find me there, go ahead. It's, it's a happier place. Yeah, but I don't really do much about movies on Instagram. Uh, so it's like basically if you want to see, I don't know, my flowers and bread, it's on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Uh, Keith, what about you? Uh, I'm a freelance writer. You can find me on Twitter at kphips3000. And hey, as long as we're doing it, you can find me on the Instagram at kphips3000 too. <laughs> uh, I'm also on Letterboxd at kphips3000. It's strong branding. That's the way I mean. <laughs> um, But um, you can find my writing at, uh, oh, you can find it at The Ringer. You can find it at Vulture. You can find it at TV Guide. You can find it uh, other places as well, I'm sure. So uh, yeah, again, Twitter, kphips3000 and across the board. There, yeah, That's where you'll find me. Um, Tasha, how about you? I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. I am currently writing about the Annecy Film Festival and the animated films there. You can find that uh, giant list of letterboxed recommendations, um, one from every genre. So uh, 21 films about black life with Adam Davies' personal recommendations and, and explanations. It's a really, really good list, but his explanations are amazing. You can find that all at polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You cannot find me on Instagram as anything. I do not even have a, a fake Instagram. I am just a completely non-Instagram person. But you can find me on Letterboxd at Tasha Robinson. But you'd really be better off following Adam Davey, uh, who created that list and also writes about film on Letterboxd uh, way more cogently and in detail and in an interesting way than I do. Scott, what about you? Uh, yeah, well, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. So I think Instagram is the same. as <laughs> the same handle. I, I've, I've used it very fitfully in the past. I think my most recent uh, pictures were of of uh, our my our trip to Maine last summer. <laughs> so you can still, if you want to look at some of those pictures, they're pretty nice. I'm proud of them. Um, and you can find my work as a film and TV uh, writer at New York Times, yeah, at uh, Vulture, at Guardian. I've been doing a ton of retrospective writing for them recently. Um, yeah, so that's that's me. Uh, you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Including that commentary tracks episode that we're definitely going to record at some oh, point totally, soon. totally, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Picket lines and picket signs. Don't punish me of brutality. Come on, talk to me so you can see what's going on. Yeah, what's going on. Tell me what's going on. I'll tell you what's going on. Woo! Right on, baby.